Well, today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You know, I often thought, why do churches choose a name for them? I've been a pastor of several churches, and we, we had a church named Bethel Baptist Church, then First Baptist Church, and then they, they were named. But imagine being Corinthian Baptist Church. I think I would not want to name my church after the Corinthians because they were filled with trouble. Now, your church might be filled with trouble anyway, but, but advertising that, that's not a good thing. Well, Paul is dealing, in this letter, he's, he's writing problem after problem after problem that he's trying to deal with. And it was kind of good that he did that because it helps us know things that we need to be correcting in our church ministry as well. Well, he is, he is dealing with two problems. He's instructing them regarding women's head coverings and then abuses of the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at those two things. They're there. We want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Follow along as I read. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is in the image of glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as the woman came from man, even so man also comes through the woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. Today, Father, we come in your presence and pray that you would help us to understand what Paul meant when he wrote to the church at Corinth. And also, Father, when he deals with the communion disorders, I pray you would help us to apply them to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's look first of all at Paul's instruction regarding church order in verses 1 through 16. Now, the Christian faith, when it came to uh, civilizations back in Paul's day, brought freedom and hope to women, to children, even to slaves. It taught that all people, regardless of race or sex, were equal before their Creator, and that all believers were one in Jesus Christ. Now, the local church was perhaps the only fellowship in the Roman Empire, the only organization that didn't um, judge you. 
that welcomed all people regardless of nationality, regardless of social status or sex or economic position. Now, this is the gospel and its freeing power. Now, some in the church at Corinth, some of the women had taken this freedom a little bit too far. They, had, they were in excess on this. They flaunted their freedom in the public meetings by refusing to cover their heads when they participated. Now, let me explain this. In the culture of Paul's day, respectable women covered their heads with a piece of their garment or a shawl in virtually all public settings, and it it signaled that they were attached to a man and were morally respectable. And you see that in a lot of countries you go to today, especially in a Muslim um, country. Uh, Everybody in public, all the women in public, have to put a a covering over their head and even a veil over their eyes. But this was not a veil over the face. It was part of the garment, like a hoodie or something, that the women had to put over their head. And the reason is, in Paul's day, if a woman did not have this covering out in public, it announced that she was willing to entertain advances from men. For the Christian women in the church to appear in public without the covering, let alone even to pray and share the word, was both daring and even blasphemous. Women would not dare go into a public, especially in church, without this head covering to show the order and submission that the society actually had. Now, Paul mentions in verses 1 through 3, and he teaches them a complementary teaching, Christ's order for authority. First of all, the head of the woman is man. Now, Paul teaches this, and it's based upon the creation order, and it's based upon the fact that woman was created for man to be a helpmeet. And in the home, Man is given the responsibility as the head of the family. And even in church setting, we see that uh, taught in the scriptures as well. The head of man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. Now, Paul sought to restore order by reminding the Corinthians that God has made a difference between men and women. That each has a proper place in God's economy. Paul did not say or even hint that this difference meant inequality or inferiority because we're not. We're all equal in that. But somebody has to be the leader and God showed that in his teaching. And there was a violation of this authority of removing their head coverings when they were in church. Perhaps they were wanted to be more like the man. Perhaps they wanted uh, to flaunt their equality in Christ. But they ended up looking disrespectful and like immoral women. So the head covering issue, because of the angels, Paul mentions that, wear a covering in the house of God because of the angels. Now remember, angels were created all good. And Lucifer rebelled against the God the Father, and led a rebellion, and they were kicked out of heaven. So angels like to see submission to the authority that God has set up. 
And that's why the angels were watching the service. And I believe angels still watch the services of God's people here, learning about God and, and salvation and things like that. So the good angels were acutely interested in proper submission in the church. Okay, well, that's good and fine, Pastor, but what do we make of that in application to us today? There's two questions that I think we can ask ourselves from this passage of Scripture about women's head coverings and about the hair and long hair and short hair. So the first question, should a woman cover her hair in church today? Short answer, no. I don't think it's necessary unless you were in a culture where it would be expected to show submission. Now, if you were in an Amish community, yes, you definitely have to. Mennonites, probably. Or uh, we had a visitor here uh, for some time, a couple from a Russian Baptist church over there. The veil, the head covering just showed submission to authority and they practice it. But we don't have that issue in our society today. Uh, Head coverings do not do that as it did in Paul's day. So I don't think it's necessary at all for a woman to wear a head covering. Now, what is the application? Well, the application, since women's uh, back there, Paul wanted to make sure that the women were not shown as loose and immoral because uh, only the prostitutes would shave their heads and things like that back then in Bible times. But I think the application is modesty. I think the application is women should dress modestly to avoid the appearance of any questionable morality at all. So if there's an application, that would be it. The second question that we ought to gate from here, because we read a little bit in this passage of Scripture that it's a shame for a man to have long hair. So the question is, is it a sin for man to have long hair today? Now, the idea, doesn't even nature itself teach you? Paul was trying to show. Now, back in Paul's day, in that culture, men wore short hair. Men had short hair. He said, well, what about the the pictures of Jesus uh, painted in the long, well, uh, no one was there. We don't know how long Jesus' hair was. We have no. He was not a Nazarite. A Nazarite could not cut their hair. And certain ages, men had long hair. Look at the old preachers from the 1700s. They had long hair. The issue was, back in Paul's day, if a man in the church had long hair, you know what he was trying to? He was trying to be feminine. He was showing himself that he was trying to act like a girl. And so, doesn't even nature itself teach you that there's a difference between the sexes? So, long hair is not an issue in cultures where hair length isn't tied specifically to a gender. So, what is the application that we could take from men? Believers should embrace their culture's symbols of masculinity and femininity. I always mess those words up. Masculinity and femininity. Act like a man, act like a woman. That's what it means. Whatever they might be, and not try to blur the lines. Boy, isn't that society today? People can't make up their mind, men or women. You know, I I tell you, it is becoming ridiculous. You know what Genesis 1.27 says? The first part of the verse says, God made man, man is made in the image 
of God and male and female he made them. He made them that way. God has made men to be men and women to be women. Now, we, and, and the idea is we need to embrace. Now, I know what I'm teaching is not politically correct, not PC, but as long as it's BC, biblically correct, that's, that's important. I, I, I think that we need to rebel against the cur- current culture in, in all aspects and proclaim the Bible's teaching of God created men and God created women to be in, in the roles that God has made them. Well, that's the first problem. Let's move on to the main passage that I want to deal with today. And the second problem Paul addresses, instruction regarding the Lord's Supper. Verses 17 to following. Now the Corinthian situation, let me read verses 17 to 22. Because Paul had heard that they were really messing up their church service as it deals with the Lord's Supper. Listen to this. Verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there's divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there also must be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who who have nothing? What shall I say to these, to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. He is really castigating them because uh, since the beginning of the church, it was customary for believers to gather together and they would have a big potluck every Sunday. They would have, it was called the agape feast or the love feast. It was an opportunity for fellowship and for sharing with those who are less privileged. And that's why they called it the love feast because you you helped people and you gave them something to eat. For some of the poor people, this was their only decent meal that they would have all week at all. They, They climaxed this love feast at the end with an observance of the Lord's Supper that Jesus instructed the church to observe and that Paul taught them at the end of that service. They called this whole meal, this meal, the love feast, since its main emphasis was showing the love for each other and their sharing with one another. Now, it was part of their worship service here at Corinth. Some serious abuses had crept in. For one thing, various cliques were in the church, and people loved to sit with their own crowd instead of fellowshipping with the whole church. Uh, Some of the more wealthy people who had opportunity to buy more expensive food, they would come into the fellowship feast, the love feast, and they would all sit over here with their rich friends and they would share that. And then the poor people would come and they would not share that uh, steak and potato dinner. The, the poor people probably just brought in some oatmeal. You know, that's about all they could afford to bring. And they, that's all they would, instead of sharing the food with everyone and waiting on each other until everybody got there and to promote love and unity in the church they were eating and some people were getting drunk at 
the communion service. Paul is just on their case for their selfishness and their gluttony and even their drunkenness. This opportunity to show love and union just was flat on their face and Paul's chewing them out. And then in verses 23 to 26, he gives Christ's instructions for how to do the Lord's Supper. And of course, Paul received this instruction from Jesus himself when he was taught by the Lord. Look at verse 23 and following. We read this every communion service. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Communion, as what we call this, the Lord's Supper, is a a time to look back. Look back at the cross. Look back at what Jesus went through, his broken body and his, his blood being shed for our sin. It's a time to look back. It's a time to look forward until I come. We continue to observe this until the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And it's also a time to look within, but let a man examine himself. Dr. Warren Wiersbe notes that when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, he did not transform either the bread or the wine into anything different. So that from that hour, they would serve as memorials of his death. The broken bread reminds us of Christ's body given for us. The cup reminds us of his shed blood. It's a remarkable thing that Jesus wants his followers to remember his death. Most of us try to forget death when it comes our way and hits our family. But Jesus wants us to remember his death. Not remember his life, not remember his teachings, but his death because his death is what makes us Christians, believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died because it's part of the gospel message. It's not the life of our Lord or his teachings that will save sinners, but his death. That's why we remember that he died for our sins. He was our substitute, paying the debt that we could not pay. Now, as we remember this, it's not just remembering something that he did way back then. We are participating with him as we worship him, as we observe the Lord's Supper. We have fellowship with a living Savior as our hearts reach out by faith. So, Paul instructed them about some of the abuses, and then he, he gave Christ's instructions on, on what this is all for, what this is all about. It's not about filling your stomach. It's not about enjoying the food. It's about remembering what Jesus did. And then he also gives some needed preparation. He mentions to them in verse 27 that they... Do not partake of this unworthily, unworthily. Now, we need to remember that the Lord's Supper is not for worthy people, but for those who approach worthily by faith in Christ. None of us 
are worthy or meritorious enough on our own. We can only come when we're pleading the blood of Jesus Christ. What does this mean then, eating unworthily? Well, just look at the abuses that the Corinthians, they were selfish. They were trying to to eat this just to satisfy their hunger. They weren't considering other believers and their mind wasn't even on the Lord. So they were doing this in an unworthy manner. So make sure that we don't. Make sure, first of all, you know Christ as your Savior. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you should not partake of the Lord's Supper. There's nothing in that that will save you at all. I, I realize that some denominations teach that, but you are partaking in an unworthy manner if you don't know the Lord is your Savior. You're focusing on Christ. And then it says, but let a man examine himself. This is a time that we encourage people before they partake of that as the elements are being passed to pray and ask God to forgive you of your own sin. Use this time for a self-examination because I want to tell you, none of us are worthy. None of us ever will be worthy, but we can be having our hearts cleansed. If you've got bitterness towards someone, if you haven't released that, if you haven't resolved the conflict, if you still are, are, are harboring that sinful practice and you're not letting it go, it's a time to, to ask God to con- cleanse your heart from it. Any rebellion, any anger, any bitterness that's there, get rid of it before you partake of the Lord's Supper. Examine yourself and then do judgment on your own heart. If we will not judge our own sins, then God will judge us and chasten us until we do confess and forsake those sins. Don't come to communion and become religious detectives looking around and saying, I don't know if they should take or anything like that. Just watch your own self. Watch your own heart. Orderly conduct is also to be contained. In verse 33 to 34, notice what it says. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat... Eat the Lord's Supper. Wait for one another. What does that mean? Wait for one another. Well, wait till everybody's there. You know, the, the problem at the, the church in Corinth, they, they took their meal aside and they were starting to dig into their food before the poor people got there because they might take some of their food. I mean, this is a sharing thing. This is something all of us partake together because we're one body in Christ. They should wait. The Lord's Supper should be a demonstration of the unity of the church. It's a family meal, and the Lord of the family desires that his children love one another and care for one another. So how do we, what kind of uh, concluding applications uh, can we take away from this passage of Scripture? The first part, one application Cultural customs may change, but God's order remains constant. Head coverings come into style, go out of style. Hair length comes into style, out of style. I mean, I remember back when I was early, all the women had to put their hair up in, in a bun. I mean, they had to do different things. All of these things change clothing styles, and, but God's order of authority does not change. Male and female, headship of, the, of that is all there in a biblical thing. Second application is, communion should be one of the most intimate times of worship, a time to confess. Come to the Lord's table often with love for others. Come 
remembering the Lord and what he's done, and come examining your own heart. We're going to have the deacons come forward at this time, and we're going to do just that this morning. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as we do, take the time that we have before the elements come to you, before we partake together, to think about the cross. Think about what Jesus did and his death on the cross to pay for your sin. And ask him to cleanse your own heart and make sure that you have nothing between your Lord and you. Let's do that together this morning.